Please stand if you're able for the scripture lesson. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, the chief cry of Revelation chapter 19 is Hallelujah. That is the Hebrew word for praise God. And all the heavenly hosts are crying with one voice, Hallelujah. John, the author says, it's louder than the roar of Niagara Falls. It's mightier than the rolls of a violent summer thunderstorm. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah is a, is a cry of joy. It's a cry of relief. Relief like the kind you have when you arrive to safety at the end of a long and treacherous journey. I like to think it's like Samwise Gamgee returning to the Shire after the, after the war in Mordor and the Lord of the Rings. At least in the movie version, don't at me Tolkien people. Friends, hallelujah is the cry of Easter. How many times have we said today, hallelujah is the proper response to the wonderful works of God? Brothers and sisters, you need to know something today. You need to know that these very same people that are crying out hallelujah in this chapter, they were crying out something quite different just a few chapters before in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, the heavenly hosts were crying out, how long? How long? How long, God, until you heal this broken world? And that's a different cry, isn't it? 
How long is not a cry of joy, but of sorrow, not of relief, but of anguish? How long is the phrase when you're still in the middle of danger or pain or suffering? When you know that what's happening is, is categorically not right, but you're holding on to just enough faith to pray and hope that God is listening, that God cares, that God still has a plan to make things right. How long, O oh Lord, is the Bible's language for lament? And so what I want to ask today on Easter is how in the world did they move from a cry of how long to a cry of hallelujah? How do we move from how long to hallelujah? Because we know, friends, we live in a how long world, do we not? The cry of this world is how long? How often has this been the cry of your heart, if not even of your lips, over the pain of this world, even in recent times. How long until this pandemic is actually over? Until this disease stops assaulting our physical and mental health and taking loved ones from us? How long? How long until this war is over? Until we no longer see the images of bodies fallen in the streets of Ukraine, the ravages of a senseless brutality? How long until racism is no more? And we no longer see black and brown lives denied the dignity they deserve as image bearers of God. How long until cancer is no more? Until it stops showing up uninvited into our lives, messing things up. Friends, we live in a how long world. Abortion, gun violence, Abuse, abuse in the church, depression, loneliness, suicide, the list goes on and on and on. How long, O oh Lord? That's the cry of the world. That there is something desperately wrong in our world is the single most verifiable fact of human existence. All we have to do is look around. And if we're honest, all we have to do is look inside of our own hearts to see that evil is present right there too, at least in seed form. Right? Maybe not full-fledged murder, but the seed of hate. Maybe not acted upon adultery, but lust for someone that doesn't belong to us. Maybe not outright theft, but the seed of coveting what other people have. See, throughout the book of Revelation, the author John, his way of showing us what's wrong in the world is to use these caricatures, these images of hideous monsters and beasts. Makes me think of the author Flannery O'Connor, who once commented on why she used such disturbing characters in her stories. She said, you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. Now, she must come from the same school as the Apostle John, because that's what he's been doing. Using large and startling figures to shock us into the truth of the evils that are present in our world. So there's a great red dragon, which for John is a symbol of Satan, the awful enemy of God. There's a great sea beast which is a symbol of evil governments that oppress the world and persecute the people of God. 
There's a land beast, which is a symbol of man-made religions that deceive the people of the world. Is also referred to as the false prophet. And then there's the great harlot, a.k.a. Babylon, which is a symbol of the city of man that entices and allures people to turn away from God. Eugene Peterson, in his, in his book on Revelation, I've been reading throughout the series, he comments on why John writes like this. Listen to what Peterson says. If there is no accurate perception of catastrophe, there can be no adequate perception of salvation. For salvation is God's action that deals with the catastrophe. He's right. Catastrophe is the right word for the result of human sin and rebellion against God. A catastrophe that is beyond human calculation, beyond human capacity to fix. And salvation is the right word for God's answer to our catastrophe. But friends, to perceive the salvation, you have to first perceive the catastrophe. You got to feel it. To appreciate the light, you got to know the darkness. White paint pops when it's applied to a black canvas. So you got to know the cry of how long before you can appreciate the cry of hallelujah. But did you know? Did you know that the hallelujah of Revelation 19 is the first time it appears in the entire book of Revelation? In fact, the four hallelujahs in this chapter are the first and only appearances of the word in the entire New Testament. I think the author is trying to show us something. I think he's intentionally trying to mirror what the Psalms do, the journey that the Psalms take. See, just like the Psalms go through many, many chapters of lament of how long, how long, before they finally arrive to the hallelujah chorus at the end from Psalms 146 to 50, so also that's what we're doing in the book of Revelation. We have to go through the many cries of how long before we finally arrive to the hallelujah chorus of chapter 19. The point is this, the cry of this world is how long? The cry of the world to come for those who have sought refuge in Christ is hallelujah. And so brothers and sisters, I ask you again, how does one move from the cry of how long to hallelujah? The answer, according to Revelation 19.1, is to know that salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. That could be a summary of the whole story of the Bible and the whole message of the gospel. Salvation belongs to our God. What does that mean? A missiologist by the name of Christopher Wright explains it like this. Salvation, as biblically understood, is not at human disposal or a matter of human achievement. We do not own it or control it. Salvation belongs to God, initiated by his grace, achieved by his power, offered on his terms, secured by his promises, guaranteed by his sovereignty. God is the subject of the act of saving us. He is not the object of our attempts to gain salvation. Salvation is the result of no action of ours other than that of asking and accepting it from God. So how do we move from how long to hallelujah? By admitting that salvation does not belong to us. 
and by admiring that salvation does belong to God. And this is illustrated for us in, in our text in a, in a powerful way by, by what, is, what I'm calling John's version of the tale of two cities. The city of Babylon, which is a symbol of the city of man, and the symbol of the new Jerusalem, a symbol of the city of God. And the way John tells this tale of two cities, he tells it as a story about two women. The great harlot that represents the city of Babylon and the great bride that represents the city of New Jerusalem. Hey, maybe that's, that's what that beer from New Glarus Brewing Company is about. Two women? Maybe it's about these two women? No? No, probably not. But notice, notice friends, notice our, the story of our text. Our text begins with the judgment of the great harlot and it ends with the wedding of the great bride. The way of the harlot leads to destruction. The way of the bride leads to delight. And this is how John's trying to show us what it means that salvation belongs to our God. Notice the reason for the first three hallelujahs is given in verse 2. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And notice the reason for the final hallelujah is given in verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. See, for John, salvation means that the harlot is judged, and the bride is welcome to the feast. Or as Eugene Peterson says, salvation is both a meal and a war. Listen, he says, salvation is the intimacies and festivities of marriage. Salvation is the aggressive battle and the defeat of evil. Salvation is neither of these things by itself. It is the two energies, the embrace of love and the assault on evil in polar tension, each defined by the other, each feeding into the other. If you're like me, you probably like the meal image better than the war image. But they are two sides of the same coin of salvation. And brothers and sisters, I believe it is the only way that we can have both true justice and true love that we are earnestly looking for. What do I mean by that? We see the judgment of the great harlot is justice. The kind of justice that seems to elude us so often in this world. See, why in the world do you think John chooses a harlot as the image of the city of man? Well, I'll give you a hint. Does that doesn't have anything to do with sex. It's about worship. It's all about seeking a substitute for God. As the famous quote says, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. See, that's why John chooses a harlot. Because the city of man only offers cheap substitutes for the real thing, even when it comes to justice. See, what we want is God. What we are offered is easy religion. What we want is justice. And what we are offered is politics or activism or just optimism. It is our attempts as the city of man to deal with the catastrophe of the world without having to deal with God. It's our way of saying salvation belongs to us. 
Listen again how Eugene Peterson says it. The world's alternative to salvation is optimism. Optimism is a way of staying useful and being hopeful without having recourse to God. Optimism comes in two forms, moral and technological. The moral optimist thinks that the generous applications of well-intentioned goodwill to the slag heaps of injustice, wickedness, and the world's corruption will put the world gradually but surely to right. The technological optimist thinks that by vigorously applying scientific intelligence to the problems of poverty, pollution, and neurosis, the world will gradually but surely be put right. Neither form of optimism worships God. Because that hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? It does for me. How many of our solutions to the injustice of this world is some form of moral or technological optimism? If we are just kind enough, if we are just progressive enough, if we are just educated enough, if we are just scientifically advanced enough, and yet true, satisfying justice always eludes us. It's harlotry. It's the promise of the real thing, real thing, but it's only a cheap knockoff. And what John is trying to say to us today is that true justice will not come from the city of man, but from the city of God. True justice will come when the harlot is judged. And then the world will finally cry out, hallelujah. Not how long anymore, but hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our own campus minister, Cam Brown, is preaching next Sunday. Sorry, I should have told you you're going to be on an illustration on Easter Sunday. Hey, you're going to be on an illustration Easter Sunday. He's preaching next Sunday, uh, and I told him, I told him the, the passage is going to be Revelation chapter 20, which is about the defeat of the great dragon. <laughs> and Cam said, man, I always seem to get assigned the judgment passages. Thanks. And so today, I want to remind all of us, before he preaches next week, that part of the good news of salvation is judgment. It's actually good news. Judgment is about the creator making everything finally right in his creation. Judgment is why in Psalms 96 and 98, the sea is roaring, the rivers are clapping their hands, the trees of the forest are singing for joy. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. It means God is making everything right again. And friends, it is especially good news because salvation is a war, yes, but it's a war that was first fought for us by Christ on the cross. That's what the first Easter is all about. Jesus taking all the evil, the injustice, the idolatry of our sin upon himself, letting it kill him so that it doesn't kill us. In love, letting our justice fall upon him. And then rising from the dead in victory over our greatest enemies to begin a whole new creation. You see, Revelation 19 is Jesus finishing what he started at Easter. And brothers and sisters, when every evil is banished from this world, all the heavenly hosts will shout hallelujah. Salvation belongs to our God. And everyone who belongs to Christ will join in. From the least to the greatest. Brothers and sisters, is, the, is there any other Savior like Jesus? Is there any other King like Jesus who wins by losing? 
who dies for his enemies, who conquers the world with a single weapon of his word. Not through power, but through sacrificial love. Which leads to our next point. Yes, salvation is a war, and the judgment of the harlot means finding the justice we are actually looking for. But friends, salvation is also a meal. And the welcoming of the bride means finding the love that we are so deeply looking for. Again, the imagery of the harlot is poignant. The city of man only offers a cheap substitute for love. We're looking for love, but we settle for lust. We're looking for the union of souls, but we settle for the union of bodies alone. We're looking for a whole life commitment, and we settle for just a temporary exchange. We're looking for someone who will give themselves fully to us, and we only find those who want to take from us. Looking for intimacy, we only find the commercialization of our deepest longings for love. See, in the absence of Christ, we settle for these knockoff brands. And they are in abundant supply in the city of men. They're always calling to us, enticing us, seducing us away from the love of God, but only leaving us empty. One of the greatest illustrations of this, and actually one of the most moving cinematic experiences of my life, was watching Anne Hathaway as Fantine in Les Miserables. A character who, like so many of us, it's just looking for love. But in the cruel underworld of the early 1800s, Paris left her cold and empty. And in this moment, in this powerful scene, as she hit rock bottom, as she had to sell her hair, her teeth, even her body, to provide for her child, Fantine sings the song that I would consider the anthem of life in the cities of Babylon. I dreamed a dream. If you know it, she sings of a time when men were kind. When she dreamed of having a love that would never die. She sings about how a man came into her life that she, she thought could be this love. But he turned out to be a beast who only took from her and left. And turned her dream into shame. The song, you can see it, she's singing it on her bed. She says, I had a dream my life would be. So different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. If you know the story, after she dies, Fantine's daughter, who's orphaned, Cosette, she finds a savior in the love of Jean Valjean, who takes her as his own daughter. But I love at the very end of the story, you get the sense that Fantine herself has found an even greater love from an even greater savior. When Valjean himself is on his deathbed years later, the spirit of Fantine appears and she sings. You remember what she says? Take my hand, I will lead you to salvation. She's saying the justice, the freedom, the rest, the love that you've been looking for your whole life is with God. Come with me, I will lead you to salvation. Brothers and sisters, it is no accident that the Bible ends with a wedding. 
Because at the end of all of our longings for love, all of our broken dreams, all of our pain and suffering is a love of which even the best marriages were but a pale glimpse. A love that is better than life. Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this Easter that you are invited to the meal of all meals, to the party of all parties, to the love of all loves, Revelation 19 is Jesus' save-the-date card. And so I have to ask, what is your RSVP? Are you a bride that has made herself ready? How do we even make ourselves ready? Two things. One, by coming out of Babylon. Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, my people. What that means is by giving up all forms of self-salvation. By coming to an end of all of our remedies for the world's catastrophe apart from God. And secondly, by coming in to Christ. By receiving the wedding dress that he gives as a gift. Notice Revelation 19.8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, your righteous deeds are given to you as a gift. By grace, it was granted her. The wonder of the gospel is that God turns harlots into brides. Though our hearts have looked for love in so many other places, Jesus pursues after us. He gives himself up for us. He washes us from our sins by his own death. He clothes us with righteousness of his own perfect life. He will raise us up on the last day to present us as a radiant bride, holy and without blemish. And so I ask one final time, how does our cry move from how long to hallelujah? When we know that salvation belongs to our God. When we see in his war, the justice that we have been longing for, when we see in his meal the love we have been longing for, when we can live like the radiant bride that we are in Christ until the day when Jesus says, come, for the feast is prepared. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Oh Lord, you know our cries of how long, you know the cries of your world of how long, because you are God, because you are listening, because you care. And I thank you, Lord, that you are writing a story that does not end with how long, but ends with hallelujah. Lord, I pray that we would find that song today, that we would begin to sing it even now ahead of time, because we have found in you a justice and a love that we could find nowhere else. Lord, help us to abandon all other means of salvation and to sing with the saints of all times and places, salvation belongs to our God. Lord, give us a a never-ending hallelujah to sing today and all the days of our life. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.